So we're in 2 Peter, and last time we got through verse 15, I believe, and sort of most of the hour was taken up talking about Calvinism. I don't know what all of you are, but I'm not a Calvinist. You can be. It's I mean, quite all right. It's a respectable position to have. Wrong, but it's respectable. <laughs> I'm kidding. So anyway, I spent a lot of time talking about that. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 12, which is the paragraph we ended with last time, and then slide on into the next paragraph. So 2 Peter 1:12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Yeshua Messiah made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So the key point there, obviously, is reminder. As I've said lots of times, Peter has the Hebrew franchise, so he is writing to people who theoretically have the scriptures as opposed to Paul, who is writing to Gentiles, and you don't know whether they do or not. So what he's doing here is reminding them of things that they already know. And as I have said many times, and I'm sure lots of other people have said, because it's not original with me, a lot of Scripture is there for reminder and encouragement. So one of the reasons you read your Bible more than once is because you sort of need constant encouragement, especially as you're going through the world and the world is being the way the world is. Encouragement is necessary. And so Peter is writing this by way of encouragement to people he's written to before. And we need the encouragement, which is why we read it. So now verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Yeshua Messiah. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Obviously what Peter is doing is referring to the transfiguration and is saying that he knows personally of where he speaks. So he walked with Yeshua, saw the transfiguration, saw the voice of God come down and lay on Yeshua that he was well pleased, obviously saw him glowing with white and so forth. So from his perspective, there's no question about any of this. Now, One of the things that Brian used to say, which I always kind of liked, is when somebody says, God told me this, Brian's comment was, I'm glad he told you, and I'll wait until he tells me. Because it's a really simple thing to say, God told me this, or I saw this vision, or whatever. So Peter here is leading with, I was an eyewitness, I was there, I walked with him, I saw that. But now look what he says next, verse 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, 
to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Pause there. The point he's making here is, yeah, I saw it. But the fact that I saw it is not dispositive. The thing that makes it true is what I am saying to you lines up with Scripture. And Scripture is the thing that you can count on. You don't count on some guy that wanders through with a three-day pass in a briefcase and says, I saw the Lord! Remember our dear friend Peter throughout the Gospels, the only time he ever opened his mouth was to change feet. But after the resurrection, after Shavuot, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell down, he stands up in front of everybody and gives this magnificent sermon without stutter, stammer, or equivocation. In other words, he is a completely changed guy, and the Holy Spirit falling on him has given him great articulation and great boldness. So he is now a dynamic and effective preacher, whereas before, as I say, he was sort of an inarticulate fisherman. Because remember, one of the things that the educated folks, temple hierarchy and so forth, said when these guys were walking around with Yeshua and talking, they said, wait a minute, these aren't educated men. Aren't these all Galileans? So it is not the case when he was walking with Yeshua, when Yeshua was alive, that he was this powerful, articulate preacher that he turned into. So the Holy Spirit and the resurrection is what changed him. Here he's saying in his letter, I saw all this. And because I saw all this, I am really passionate, I am really articulate, I am really persuasive. But that's not what you hang your hat on. What you hang your hat on is scripture. So having seen all of these things, it has clearly changed him. And it has clearly made him a very effective advocate and a very effective preacher. So I'm not suggesting that witnessing all of this was irrelevant. It wasn't. It was very relevant. But he himself then says, yeah, just because I told you I saw it, that's not the thing to believe. Check what I say against Scripture because that's what you can believe. I'm going to read all of 19 this time. I stopped in the middle. So verse 19 again. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Comment was, how would somebody respond to you if God told you to give me something? What Brian is talking about and what Peter is talking about is using God told me to justify getting you to do something. So God told me that you should give away all your money to the poor and come follow me. That's very nice, but he didn't tell me that. And if he wants me to do that, he needs to come tell me. You saying God told me to donate this, that's between you and God, and it doesn't place an obligation on me. So I'm perfectly happy to believe you when you say that. 
And what Peter, of course, is doing here is he's writing a letter of encouragement, exhortation, and in a moment he's going to start talking about correction. So in that case, what he wants to assure people is this is not just Peter rolling his own. This is Peter who did walk with Yeshua, but Peter who also knows the scriptures and is bouncing his opinions off the scriptures. Paul does the same thing in Corinthians. One of the things Paul does very carefully is he differentiates between God says this and Paul says this. So when he's talking about marriage, for example, he says, I am telling you this not as if it's something from God, but it is something from me, and I am a wise person, so you would do well to listen to it, but it is not a commandment of the Lord. So both Peter and Paul differentiate between, I'm telling you something because I'm an elder and I'm wise, and you would do well to do that, as opposed to, I'm telling you this because that's what God says to do. And they're fairly careful to differentiate between those two things. Anyway, prophecy. A couple of things about prophecy. One of the things I was talking about on Shabbat is the entire Bible is devoted to slavery. The impetus to the writing of the Bible, of course, is when Moses took everybody out of Egypt. And Moses, of course, wrote Genesis, which he didn't live through, by way of context. But the Bible really starts with the Exodus. And the Torah, of course, is God's instruction of, now that I've got you out of slavery, how do you keep out of slavery? And then you have the prophets who over and over again come to Israel when they are violating the terms of slavery, either enslaving people that they shouldn't enslave or oppressing people they shouldn't oppress, and so forth, and God sends prophets to correct them. And then, of course, Yeshua comes to us to bust us out of slavery. One of the ways you can tell whether something is really scripture or not is if it's consistent with the pattern of the Bible. And so what Peter is saying here is prophecy as written in the Tanakh, which is the Bible at that point, Prophecy is not somebody's wild idea that they came out from under a sacred bush with raving eyes and said, oh, prophecy is something that is given by God. And since God's word is consistent, prophecy is consistent with God's word. So when Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, any of those guys come and talk to Israel, they first tell Israel that you are not operating in accordance with the word of God. And then the next thing they say is, this is what you need to do to get lined up with the word of God. And then the other thing they say is, if you don't do it, this is what's going to happen. And of course, in the case of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, they don't do it. So that happens. The fact that that happens is not the thing that makes it scripture. How do I know that? We have a passage in last week's Torah portion. Moses says, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams comes and tells you something, and that comes to pass. So, for example, Balaam was an accurate prophet. And the thing comes to pass. The fact that the thing came to pass is not what makes him a prophet. 
The thing that makes him a prophet is that he tells you to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he doesn't try and lead you off to worshiping some sacred bush. And you can differentiate then between a real prophet and a false prophet by what he tells you to do. The comment was the complete quote of that is when this guy does come and he does try to lead you astray and he does make prophecies that come true, understand that one of the things that's going on there is God is testing you. Are you going to be swayed by miracles and abandon the word of God or are you going to hang in there with the word of God and ignore the miracles? Which is interesting because one of the reasons why Jews don't believe Yeshua was the Messiah is that passage of scripture. The fact that he did signs and wonders is not enough. He's got to do stuff in accordance with the word. And at least the way they read it, he didn't. There's a bunch of stuff the Messiah was promised to do and he didn't do a bunch of that stuff. Christians see that as we had two advents. He did part of it on the first trip through and he's going to do the rest of it on the second trip through. The Jews say, eh, no, it doesn't work because they regard him as leading Israel to a false god himself. So I believe him and I believe who he is, but a lot of Jews for intellectually good reasons do not. So what Peter is saying here is, I'm an eyewitness, that isn't good enough. You've got the scriptures, which are good enough, and furthermore, it says in the scriptures that you don't follow miracles, you don't do any of that stuff, you follow the word and you hew to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and anything that tends to lead you away from that is false. The fact that he was raised from the dead does not make him the Messiah because there are a number of other people in Scripture who were raised from the dead also, both Old and New Testament, and they are not the Messiah. You've got Lazarus. You've got the Shunammite's son. You've got the guy that came out of the grave when he was thrown in and touched Elisha's bones. I counted them up once, and I think there are as many as 20 that have been raised from the dead, and only one of them is the Messiah. And the thing that makes him the Messiah is he behaved in accordance with the prophecies. And the things that he did were according to the prophecies. And so the fact that he was raised from the dead is a cherry on top. It's not the reason that we believe. We believe because of all the things that he did that line up with the prophets. You know, the fact that he lines up with all the feasts. All those things. Those are part of the prophecies and those are part of the things that he aligns with scripture. But as I say, the mere, mere. I don't know that merely being raised from the dead is so mere, but being raised from the dead is not the thing that makes it true. He was raised from the dead in accordance with the scripture because he is who he said he was. We have records in scripture of him being raised from the dead and doing things like showing up in locked rooms all sorts of stuff that indicates that he was not raised in the same way Lazarus was raised or the Shunammite son was raised. It is my belief that the other 19, I'm using the word 19 because I think there were 20, but it's been so long since I counted them, that number may be wrong. But the other 19 were raised from the dead so that when Yeshua was raised from the dead, it didn't freak everybody out. 
In other words, it was something that had happened before, and it was not the case that if it had never happened, they would have been able to say, nobody's ever been raised from the dead. They just stole his body, and some other guy in a good makeup is the one that showed up. But the fact that in their own scriptures, people have been raised from the dead gives credence to the fact that he was too. All right. So now we're down to chapter 2. So 2 Peter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So he's already said that the prophets who made it into Scripture are true prophets, but there were also false prophets. And you find them, for example, in the book of Judges. And in fact, one of the things I've said in the past is being a prophet in Israel is tough duty because if a king didn't like your prophecy, he'd have guys take you out and beat you up to get you to change your prophecy. So prophecy was something that was fairly common in Israel, but all of them were not godly prophets. And he's saying, just as false prophets arose among the people in the Tanakh, so too you're going to have false teachers come through here to lead you astray. And the other part of that is denying the master who bought them. So one of the things that is going to be a characteristic of these false teachers is in the same way that false prophets in Deuteronomy tried to lead Israelites away from God, so these false teachers will try and lead you away from Yeshua. You see the parallelism there? Moses warned about false prophets who would be able to do signs and wonders, but they were trying to get you to go worship other gods. Here you're going to have teachers who are going to be very persuasive, but they're going to deny Yeshua. So verse 2, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Notice two things. Sensuality, that's sex. And one of the things that Satan uses as sort of a primary tool to draw people to worshiping him is sex. So the idea that if you go away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has fairly strict rules about when the reproductive organs are appropriately used, and if you use them in other contexts, it's not good. So now down to verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the godly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, 
For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Now you have several cross-references there, but the poster child is in Jude. So in Jude, he's talking about the same thing. So I'm now down in Jude verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Yeshua Messiah. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, so again, he is writing to Hebrews here, okay? Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Yeshua, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay upon their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So you have sort of parallel passages here between Peter and Jude, and both of them are talking about people who have come into the fellowship, people who are teaching and leading others astray, and one of the things they are leading them astray to is unauthorized use of the reproductive organs. You cross-reference this with Peter, where he's talking about the ancient world that preserved Noah. That takes you to Genesis 6, where you have the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and so forth. So all of those three passages of Scripture taken together indicates that there is something to do with illicit sex in all three passages of Scripture. Where I was going is one of the primary tools of pagan religion is sexuality. Because as I was saying earlier, God gave us sexuality for good reasons. He made it fun for good reasons. But he set some fairly strict limits on when it was appropriate. And one of the things about pagan religions is they go beyond those boundaries to sensuality when it is not appropriate. And that's one of the chief things that they use to lure people away from God. Look at our society today. One of the things that many, many young people have been turned off to Christianity about is it won't let me do the things I want to do. Very often having to do with youth and hormones. And that has been the case ever since the creation. Going to seek members of the opposite sex is really healthy, but unrestrained, it leads to all sorts of problems. And what happens is Satan tempts us 
with something that God has given us that is very powerful and in that leads us astray. So what we wind up doing is worshiping idols which tell us that the thing we want to do is okay. Whereas if you worship God and you're doing that stuff, you get condemned for being sinful and it's just a real downer. But if you go to the temple and they say, oh man, this is the way you worship, this is really good. Not only do I get to do what I want to do, but nobody's condemning me. How many times have you heard the modern mantra is, you can't judge me? That's the modern catechism. You can't judge me. And very often it has to do with sex or sexuality. Peter and Jude appear to be talking about the same things. In Jude, verse 4, says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Yeshua Messiah. Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The sin, if you will, and the behavior is both the same as Jude as in Peter. The point I'm making is both Jude and Peter are saying the same thing, which is to say you're going to have false teachers coming into the fellowship and they are going to lead people astray, and they are going to be treated in the same way as Sodom and Gomorrah and as the angels who are chained in darkness until the time of the Reformation. I'm thinking maybe let me wrap up this paragraph and we'll quit because then we're going to go into blaspheme glorious ones and so forth and that's going to take some unpacking as well so let me read verse 4 through the end and then we'll quit because we'll just get a smooth read if i can so verse 4 again second peter 2 4 for if god did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved noah a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Interestingly, this just all of a sudden occurred to me, he isn't talking here about any of the destructions that happened to Israel. He doesn't mention the destruction of the temple. This is all stuff that God did to people who are not Israel. The examples here are all of people who are not Israel, who are just generic human beings and generic angels. And what he's saying here, by using these examples, he's not talking about the sins of Israel, which are also grievous and get them sent into exile, and treated pretty roughly, quite frankly, but apparently are not of a category that gets them destroyed, or, and I don't know which this is, I have to think about this, or it is the case that since he has a covenant with them, and in that covenant he has promised not to destroy them, that may be the thing that saves them, despite 
their poor behavior. And I'm not sure about the answer to that, but I say it just all of a sudden rang a bell here that neither Peter nor Jude are talking about anything that's happened to Israel. It's all God's judgment on Gentiles, which indicates that it's not judgment based on the Torah. It's something more fundamental. And you remember in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, comes and visits Abraham, he says, I need to go down and see if these things I have heard are true. So what he's heard, whatever that is, is of sufficient gravity to cause him to come down and investigate. And of course, then we have the negotiation between him and Abraham. If you can find 10 righteous people, will you refrain? And of course, they don't find 10 righteous people. It's easier to take Lot out than it is to find 10 righteous people and preserve the city. But the destruction here, which again, correlating with Jude, has to do with unauthorized use of the reproductive organs, is fundamental as opposed to Torah, which is teaching and instruction and covenant. I'm not quite sure what to do with that, and I'll think about it some more, see if I can come up with something more cogent than what I just did on the fly. Verse 7, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So the despise authority part is where we go next.